I repeat again, I hope you'll be with us for the evening service tonight. hope you'll get back. We'd be glad to have you. Patch will make their presentation, and Brother Brian will open the scriptures to us. So I hope that you can come and join us this evening. Romans chapter 8, verse number 19, Paul writes, For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature, except also, shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Those verses of Scripture prompt with a question of, have you lost your hope? Paul is writing to the church at Rome and to these believers, and they have already been dealing with the assurances of salvation. We call them checkpoints. And what he did, he asked us questions and made comments about certain things. If you had these, if, if these were true of you, then you were truly a Christian. When he comes to this section, however, he's dealing with their hope, and he's dealing in just a slightly different kind of approach. This week, as I do or often do through the week, on Tuesday of this week, I heard those familiar words. This is Paul Harvey. Good day, America, or hello, America. And then he would say, stand by for news, you know. I enjoy that. I look forward to that every day. That's, that's really a thrill to me to hear Paul Harvey. The fact is, on Tuesday, he gave something most striking. He said there was a boy or a young man. He was 43 years of age. This man was told that he had cancer, and he had been taking extensive treatment, so said Paul Harvey. A letter was sent to the man telling him that he was cancer-free. It arrived just a few days ago. The man never saw the letter. He had given up hope on his cancer, and he hung himself before the letter arrived in the mail. He did so because he lost all hope. This week, across my desk, a young lady wrote me a letter. And in this letter, she was telling me that she has a heart to go to France for a short-term missionary trip. She was asking if we could be of help to her to get her there for the short-term missionary effort. And she stated in her letter concerning the French people, she said, quote, The French are cynical, lonely, hopeless, and depressed. The leading cause of death among young people in France, 18 to 25 years of age, is suicide. They live hopeless lives and die a hopeless death. That's an interesting thing. One of the most exciting and encouraging aspects of Christianity is the fact that it always holds out hope if you're alive. If you're breathing, there is hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Christianity doesn't give up on us. It has, as it were, an opportunity. If you were here in this service this morning and you've already been told it, you only have a day or two to live, and you've never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ to save you, the good news about Christianity is it holds out hope for you. You could be saved today. The second thing that's interesting to me is here in one of the most exciting things, I guess, or truths that we've dealt with in Romans 8 is found right here in our text today, and it is about hope. Hope is an encouraging subject. As you go through your Bible and you see it, you'll note it over and again, references about hope and uh, people who had hope and people who, who, as it were, lived and were encouraged to live faithful and fruitful lives because they were a people of hope. But what's interesting, too, is that people of this world have been led deceptively and I think sadly to believe that there's a whole list of things in which they can place hope. I ran across this article. It's uh, rather sad, frankly. It uh, tells about a group of people, uh, missionary kind of people. It first appeared in National Geographic. And then if some years ago, if you got the Daily Bread, you probably found it there. But in the National Geographic's uh, story about it, it was about a, a Pacific Island group of people who wait for their Messiah. It said, the Christ referred to in this story is not the Lord Jesus Christ but a legendary figure called John Frum, F-R-U-M. The author of this particular article, Dr. Cal Muller, points out that the islanders think this person will be either a beneficial spirit or a god that will come to earth or a king that will arrive from America. The third description has its origin in the fact that the U.S. troops occupied this area during World War II, and their presence was accompanied by many material benefits. The people therefore concluded that John Frum had finally arrived, and he came from America. Although they later experienced keen disappointment when the soldiers left, their hopes did not die. To this day, to this hour... They frequently march with bamboo rifles slung over their shoulders and the letters USA painted on their bodies and they're still looking across the shoreline for somebody to bring them hope. That's sad, isn't it? That's really sad to be looking for something that in reality is not going to come that way. It's just not going to come that way. It is a fact that's sad and truthful. That uh, these people leave out of their life the most important thing, or better I say, person. And that, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only one who can give people like this hope. In the book of Romans, which we haven't gotten to yet, chapter 15, there's this great passage. It's chapter 15, verse 13. It says, Now the God of hope, the God of hope, fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope through the power of of the Holy Ghost. What Paul was writing about, and we'll find that out later in chapter 15, was that, that there is, in fact, only in God is there real hope. A lot of folks can tell you things that may make you hopeful, but ultimately those things that you hope for or have hope in will come to a crashing conclusion. Even if you go to your doctor tomorrow and he tells you you've got a clean bill of health, you're the healthiest person I have been examined in years, you're still going to die. You're still going to die. No matter what job you have, you may go in tomorrow and they say, I just want to tell you, your job is secure as the dirt on the ground. I mean, it's, it's absolutely the most secure job that anybody in the world has. There is no question about you always having this job. That's, that's probably true as they know it. But the economy that goes south or sour in a heartbeat, and they would be without ownership and you'd be without a job. There's just no such thing as eternal hope. 
in this world apart from a relationship with the God of hope. And that's an absolute. There's just no giving on that. There's another thing to be noted in Paul's writing in chapter 2 of Ephesians. In verse number 12, he said that at that time ye were without Christ. He was talking about the, the pagan Gentiles. And he said, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise. And notice he said, having no hope and without God in the world. You know why they were without hope in this world? Because they were without God in this world. If you're going to have hope, your hope better be tied to, connected with, a relationship with God. That's what he's saying. And it's important for you to note that. How do you have it? Or what's it all about? Colossians 1.27 said, To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of his mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you. Receiving, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior is the hope of glory and a hope of relationship with the God of hope. That's the only way that it comes. But I'm here to tell you that even among believers, when they get caught up in this world and they fail to be other world centered, they lose their hope, they get discouraged, and they can uh, even get into a state of depression. I was reading uh, this week a story of, uh, of one of the songs we use. The story says the gifted Christian musician Joseph Webster was often tormented by deep feelings of depression. On one occasion when he was in a melancholy mood, he received a visit from one of his close acquaintances, Fillmore Bennett. Knowing that one way to keep Webster from brooding over his problems was to interest him in writing a hymn, <clears throat> Bennett decided he'd try to pen some lyrics that would direct his friend's thoughts heavenward. So the despondent man himself unwittingly supplied the theme for when he was asked, What's the matter now? He replied, Oh, it'll be all right by and by. That's true, exclaimed Bennett. Trials do generate great glory for us in the sweet by and by. Inspired by those thoughts, he immediately sat down, wrote several poetic verses on the subject. When his friend read them, a new look of hope came into his eyes, and his whole attitude changed. After jotting down some musical notes, Webster took up his violin, played the melody he had composed to fit the words, and within a half an hour, the enduring hymn that we sing is in your book, it's page number 40, there's a land that is fairer than day, and by faith we can see it afar, for the Father waits over the way to prepare us a dwelling place there. We shall sing on that beautiful shore the melodious songs of the blessed, and our spirits shall sorrow no more, not a sigh for the blessing of rest. To our bountiful Father above, we, we offer our tribute of praise for the glorious gift of His love and the blessings that hallow our days. In the sweet by and by, we shall meet on that beautiful shore. In the sweet by and by, we shall meet on that beautiful shore. Song born out of a guy who was saved but depressed. We don't often think about that. In fact, may I tell you that in this songbook alone, this one alone, there are probably 25 to 30 songs that were born out of believers who just simply lost their hope. They just got to a point where this world was overwhelming them and absolutely taking over all the joy and the rejoicing and the hope they had. And all of a sudden, they caught themselves discouraged to the point of depression. And it can happen in a heartbeat. And especially as you move in and about this world. Pagans notice how carefully we are about our hope. I, I was talking to someone, they pointed me to a um, historical text, and it was written in 125 A.D. It was a Greek. His name was Aristides. 
he was writing to one of his friends about the Christian faith, the new religion on the block. He was trying to explain the reasons for its extraordinary success. And here's one sentence out of a large letter he wrote. I only took out one paragraph. He said, quote, If any righteous man among the Christians passes from this world, they rejoice and offer thanks to God, and they escort his body with songs and thanksgiving as if he were settling out or setting out for one other place. It's appearing they have a hope. And is that absolutely true or not? Sure it is. Our funerals ought to be different. Services ought to be different. Everything about us in the sense of what looks to the future ought to be different because we do have a hope and it's anchored in God, not in things of this world because they're passing things, but it's in Him who is eternally the same, always the same. Never changes, doesn't get up on Monday moody. He stays the same day in and day out. That's the God in whom our hope rests. This fact, in fact comes out of a, a book that is encouraging and has been for a long time to me. It's about some of the, the artwork that's around the world. And what's fascinating to me that if you look close enough and check often enough, you'll find that even in art, there's a revelation of truth. That is, the people who did it had a point. In this case, there's a, in Paris a famous picture by Swiller. It's called The First Night Outside Paradise. That's what's written on the painting. The First Night Outside Paradise. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, have been driven out of the Garden of Eden and are preparing to spend the first night in the desert beyond. In the distant can be seen and discerned the figure of the angel with the flaming sword in this painting, but the eyes of the exiles are not fixed upon that angel. They are rather gazing far above his head, and there outlined in the light, faint but unmistakable, the artist has painted a cross. In wondering awe, their gaze is fastened on it. And the point made is, in that is our only hope. And they're right. Adam and Eve was right from the very beginning. If that's what they saw, they were absolutely correct. Their hope is in the cross of Christ, getting them into a right relationship with their Heavenly Father. Now, with all that as a background, and I know I've spent more time than usual on background work here, but it's important that you understand that as a background for what this text is about. Look at verse number 19. In Romans 8 and verse number 19, For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. You should note that the first word, for, F-O-R, in verse 19, is the kind of word sort of works in the, in the English language as it does in the Greek language to do what we call connects arguments. And so when you read a verse and it says for, it's saying based on what you just read, this goes along with that. And what Paul is doing in this case, he's continuing his argument. And the argument, of course, is included, verse 18, for I reckon that the sufferings, verse 18 says, of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And then he goes into for. Point is here, his argument is to say that the Christian life is worth living and it will be worth it all when we see Christ, when we get home to heaven. That's his overall point. It will be worth it all. So no matter what your sufferings are and what they will be, the fact of the matter is even you will confess when you get home to heaven and when you see the Lord, it's been worth it all. 
It's been worth it all. Some folk can say that even now. They've gone through things and they say it's still worth it all right now. Well, it's going to get nothing but better. And note something else. In a sentence, then, when you come to verse 19, what he is saying is, he's telling you that all creation is under the same condemnation and the same curse of sin that we humans are. And yet what his point is about creation is that they patiently wait they faithfully continue their responsibilities to function the way they should, waiting for, anticipating a day when all that's going to change. It's a way of saying, I know that you're suffering. I know that you've had some hard times, but I encourage you to do several things. One, wait patiently. Uh, don't quit on, on the Lord. Second thing, and don't quit on your responsibility. You see, what if creation quit and just said, hey, well, I'm not waiting any longer. We've had enough of waiting. We've, we've been under this curse long enough. Uh, what if the birds, tomorrow morning you get up and the sun is shining brightly and you say, well, it's going to be a beautiful day. And all of a sudden the sun goes down and all of a sudden the birds quit singing and all of a sudden there's just absolutely nothing in the air that gives you any encouragement or hope for the day. What if the creation just says, I'm not cooperating anymore. I've, I've had enough. I'm, I'm throwing in the towel. I'm not waiting any longer for this redemption of creation. What if you did? Well, you say, well, that can't happen. No, it's pre-programmed. Well, let me tell you something. What Paul is saying is, if you don't expect creation to quit on God, then you shouldn't quit on God. You expect the birds to sing in the spring? Then you ought to keep singing, even when things aren't so sweet. Things go a little harsh for you? You ought to keep fighting the battle of faith. That's the whole argument that continues down the page. When, and in verse number 19, to, to me at least, the whole thing centers on the in anticipation. In verse 19, it says, For the earnest expectation. That phrase, that particular phrase, is only found one other place in your Bible. In the New Testament, it's in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 20, where Paul said, According to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. Earnest expectation. What that word means in the Greek carries the idea of an intense waiting, a looking, an eagerness, an excited hope. It also suggests, and in some translations of the scriptures, it actually renders this Greek phrase, someone standing on their tiptoes looking for someone or something that's going to happen. Somebody standing on their tiptoes looking and anticipating. Well, look, I know and should call your attention to the fact for the earnest of the expectation here is, this, is a question that it hit me as I studied it. You know, I, that's not the way I'm looking for the Lord. I mean, just think about it. Are you that excited about anticipation of the changes that are going to come when the Lord returns? I mean, do you really, really get up in the morning with an anticipation the Lord might come today? See, the point made here is this is a kind of earnest expectation. This is no nonchalant kind of expectation. This is an earnest expectation. And important for you to know, this reminded me that in the Old Testament, do you remember the story? Uh, well, let me just share it with you. Look, if you would, in the book of Judges, chapter number 4. It's always been a fascinating story to me. It's in Judges, chapter 4. Judges, chapter 4. And uh, look at verses 1 and 2. It sort of sets the stage for what's going to be talking about. In Judges chapter 4, it says, And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord when Ehud was dead. And the Lord sold them into the land of Jabin, king of Canaan, and reigned in Hazor, the captain of whose host was Sisera, which dwelt in Herosheth of the Gentiles. The point made here is, and what the point to me called attention to, is that the captain of the host of the, these folks of the Canaanites was Sisera. 
When you read about Cicero, you can read all that chapter, if you will, at a later time. But what he says in verse 15 of chapter 4 is, The Lord discomfited, or that means was putting him in a position to lose the battle, Sisera and all his chariots and all his hosts with the edge of the sword before Barak, so that Sisera lighted down off his chariot and fled away on foot. Barak pursued after the chariots and after the host unto Arosheth of the Gentiles, and all the hosts of Sisera fell upon the edge of the sword. There was not a man left. Point is, obviously, Israel won a great victory and whatever over the Canaanites. But what's interesting is the story of Sisera doesn't stop there. From verses 17 through 24, it continues. But let me call your attention, if I may, to chapter 5 and verse 28. It says in chapter 5 of Judges, verse 28, The mother of Sisera looked out a window and cried through the lattice, Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the wheels of his chariot? Now whether this was a song of victory that was written into the Israelites' songbook about the defeat of Sisera and the Canaanites, or whether this was a reality of fact that his mother indeed did sit at the table or lattice and looked out the window and was looking where her son's chariot was coming. The point made about this and the point I'm making and drawing from this text is if you can get a hold of that, you can get a sense of the anticipation of the earnest expectation of somebody looking for somebody they really love. My point I don't know that there's a lot of Christians who have that kind of love for the Lord when it comes right down to looking for Him with such intensity. You think about it. I mean, think about this mother looking out the, out the window, anticipating her son to get back from this battle, and he's not arriving. By the way, some of you who are parents, or some of you are, are have already experienced this, and if you're a parent, you will probably experience this. There'll be a day when your child goes on a long trip, and they give you a time when they'll be back. And if they don't show up at that time, you'll be like Cicero's mother. You'll be sitting at the window and you'll be looking at every car that goes by. And you'll be watching all the lights and you'll be trying to determine, is that next car our child? Is, is that car coming over the hill? Is that our child? The fact of the matter, you, you have an earnest expectation. You have someone to whom is in that vehicle that your heart is so attached to that you can't go do something else. You can't go pick up a book and read. You can't go watch a television program. You can't do anything. You're so attached to the concern that you have for the arrival of your child that you're earnestly expecting them, and you stay right there until they walk through that door. You see, that's the kind of word that's used in this text. Now, back to verse number 18 or verse 19 of Romans it says in verse number eight, 19, for the earnest expectation, and by the way, in verse 19, what is unique about this earnest expectation is, and you should catch it here, is it is the earnest expectation of the creature. It waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. Your translation, if you have something different than a King James Bible, may state it, that it is creation. That's how it's often translated in Bibles. That's how it's translated in the Greek, is creation. What he's saying in verse 19, for the creation, and verse 19, for the earnest expectation of the creation waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. A wonderful verse that says the, the, the liberation of this earth is directly related to the liberation of every Christian when the Lord Jesus Christ comes. That's what he says. 
It simply says this earth is going to be under the turmoil, the problems, the, the complications, and all the frustrations that go with the creation are all going to be here until the sons of God are manifest, until the sons of God are identified. When God does that, then this earth itself will benefit, enjoy, and appreciate the fact that all that stuff that they've gone through because of us is over, and it's done and finished. It's interesting here, the Greek word that's used for waiteth in verse number 19, earnest expectation of the creature, waiteth. That word is the, a Greek word that's used six other times in the New Testament. Every single time that it's used, it relates to the coming of the Lord. So there's no doubt that this text of Scripture adds to that. So that means seven times in the New Testament this Greek word is used. It refers to the revealing of the sons of God when the Lord Jesus Christ comes again. Now notice, understand we are now the sons of God. But what this is talking about is that this hopeless world in which we are living, simply one neither recognizes nor appreciates the Christians that live among them. You know, you just face it. There, there's nobody typically who's a pagan who appreciates Christian people. Just doesn't. And, uh, and the fact of the matter is, uh, they're not going to. There will probably never come a time when they'll come to appreciate. But there will come a time when God calls them out and says, these are my sons and daughters. And the manifestation, the literal ideal, is opening up for our expositional viewing. That's what he's saying. And somewhere along the way, at this point, God's going to say, here they are. And he's going to show them to the world as it is. But uh, interesting thing to me, we could make it easy on the world if Christians would help this concept of acting and living and dressing and behaving like Christians everywhere we go all the time. They would at least have a chance to know what Christians are and what they're like. Something else to be noted here. Paul personifies creation as knowing, knowing things will not be as they should be until the Lord returns. So look at verse 19 in that line. For the earnest expectation of the creation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. Verse 20 carries the argument further. For, for the creature or creation was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. Paul's point is that when Adam and Eve sinned, their sin did not just affect Adam and Eve, as sin never does just affect the person who committed it. The sin affected the whole of God's creation. And the scriptures prove it beyond any doubt. For instance, in your Bible, if you turn to Genesis chapter number 3, look first at chapter number 3 and verse number 14. Genesis 3 and verse 14, Moses writes, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed, and note the word, above. Cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. You must understand, he is saying that the serpent is cursed all right enough. But the serpent is cursed above all the other animals. Therefore, in comparison to the Hebrew, all of them are cursed. The serpent's just cursed above, far above all the rest of them. So creation in this context is cursed. But not only so, but look if you would at chapter number 3 and verse 17. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife. Genesis three seventeen says... Under the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Then he says, Adam, cursed is the ground for thy sake. 
In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Verse 18, thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. Thou shalt eat the herb of the field. Verse 19, in the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat the bread till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken. For the dust thou art and unto dust shalt thou return. The point made is the earth was cursed because of Adam and Eve's sin. What you see and what we enjoy to this day is not the way this new creation was intended to be. This is not the creation that God set up in the very beginning and said, this is the way it ought to be, this is wonderful, this is great. When God got through work of creation and He said in Genesis 1.31, He said, this is good. That's an interesting thing because now you come to Romans chapter 8. Look at verse number 22. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together unto now. You had a good creation, and now you got a groaning creation. And don't tell me they're one in the same. They're not one in the same. This world around us has changed and changed drastically, and it changed drastically because of man's sin. And that's what Romans 8 is saying. And Romans 8 and verse number 20 notes something else concerning it. He says, For the creature was made subject to vanity... And notice, if you would, the verb or the phrase made subject, that, mean, uh, that means in a, in, a, in a Greek, a passive issue, meaning that, that creation didn't do this to itself. Somebody did this to me. That's what the word means in the Greek. He was made subject. Did not do it to itself, but it was made subject. Notice further, he uses this phrase in verse 20, subject to vanity. The Greek word for vanity is a word that you'll find elsewhere in your Bible is empty. It can also mean futile, meaning futility. It can also mean failure to meet a goal. Whatever you were designed for, if you're van vain, the ideal is you didn't make that goal. You didn't fulfill. You didn't get to the point of what you could have been if you'd have pursued. That's what the Greek word means here. Creation, and no part of it, now exists or function as God intended it to be when he designed it. Notice something else in verse number 20. This was not willingly. Verse 20, for the creature, or the creation, was made subject to futility, to failure, not willingly. That means it's not the fault of creation. Creation didn't mess up. Creation didn't stumble and fall. Adam and Eve did. And because Adam and Eve sinned, God brought a curse on the ground and cursed all the animals. All of creation is under the curse that you and I also know about. And by the way, Paul's not dodging the issue of who it is who did this. Look in verse 20. For the creation of the creature was made subject to vanity, not willing, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. There's only one person who would ever do something so drastic as this and yet attach some hope to the prospects of the future. And that's the God of hope. This is not Adam who did this. This is not a, a man after the fact of creation being put in proper perspective and operation. It wasn't some human. This is God Almighty who did this, and that's who Paul talks about of him. By reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. He is saying that God did this. God, who is the creator, is the God that subjected creation to the vanity or the emptiness or the futility or the failure that it is in right now. And he didn't do it with the ideal that, uh, you know, this thing is, uh, is, uh, is going to get better and better and better and better. He said, this thing's just going to wind down. It's going to go through the process of entropy 
and it's going to eventually get it to be worse than it is now. Now, uh, something interesting here, though the environmental groups have a, a high and I must say a lofty goal of restoring creation, they call it nature, uh, back to its an original state, I have news for them. The scriptures prohibit that from happening until the sons of God are manifest. So you can just rest assured. You don't have to worry about any of the environmentalists going nuts and doing anything wonderful to change the world back to what it was originally. The scriptures say it ain't going to happen. It's not going to happen because, one, it's going to be God who does it, and God won't do it until his son comes and manifests all the children of God, the sons of God. Notice something else. As I read through the text, and this is always important in Bible study, is to go through a text and just scan it with your eyes and notice the words that tell you how bad a problem creation is in. Look at verse 18. Most agree, and I'm talking most, those who are Bible teachers and scholars will agree that the suffering in verse 18 is not just our suffering, that is, we're the ones Paul primarily has in mind in verse 18, but it's also the sufferings that go on in this world under creation and its operation. Verse number 20, then, for the creature was made subject to the vanity, that's futility and failure. Look at 21, because the creature or the creation itself also shall be delivered from the bondage same verse, corruption. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain. Let me tell you something. If you think that's paradise, you're nuts. You see, that's what the Garden of Eden was. Don't we call it paradise? If you think that's paradise, you're nuts. That's not paradise. That's problem city. I mean, who wants that? Who would walk across the street for pain and suffering and, and, and emptiness and futility and failure and corruption? You tell me. Who would? I don't know of anybody with a brain between his ears. So the fact of the matter is what the Bible is saying in this context is that's how bad it's gotten. And it's just getting worse. You know, uh, man hadn't helped the cause any by all the things he does. I'm not so sure we're doing any great job on the on the ozone layer and all that. I'm not a, I'm not a scientist, and I'm not sure, certain and sure uh, that there are holes up there. I'm not convinced of all that. I'm a, I'm a Tennessee boy. We don't believe everything we read in a paper or a book or a magazine. So I'm not convinced about all that. I'm not convinced that we've got more pollution now than we had in the 1930s. I'm not convinced about a lot of these things, but I am convinced about this. I am convinced about this. When the Lord comes back and he manifests all the sons of God, he's going to clean up the whole program. Of that I am convinced because that's what the text of Scripture says and on that you can stake your life. There's a second thing that I'm interested in. In spite of all the problems that's you know, dealt with here and described here, I'm still grateful that water is wet and it still refreshes my thirst. I'm still grateful for that. I'm still grateful that food is not only nourishing, but it's enjoyable to eat. I'm grateful for that. I'm still grateful for flowers that have a fragrance, a sweet fragrance. I'm still grateful that there are some animals that are friendly to human beings. There's some are not, but there are some who are. But what the fact of the matter is, when you go through your Bible and you go through the Old Testament text that talk about a day when all that's going to be changed, you know the stories where a child can play on a, on a, on a hole of an asp, when a, a lion and a lamb can lay down together and the lion won't be munching on that for lunch. I mean, give me a break. Something obviously changed immensely so. And the fact of the matter is somehow, somewhere down the road, that's all going to go back to that when God sends his son back and manifests the sons of God. That's the difference that that's going to make. And that's the difference Christ makes. And we somehow lose hope of that because we don't think of it in that term. We think about just dying here, going to heaven, and that's the program. 
There's so much more to it. And this passage of Scripture encourages that. And by the way, I'm amazed of how verse 20 ends up. See verse 20 again, Romans 8. For the creature of the creation was made subject to vanity, emptiness, futility, not willingly, but by reason of him, God, who has subjected the same in hope. Isn't that interesting? That God always ends things on a hopeful note. And he does here because this doesn't end the sentence. This just ends the verse. And it says, who has subjected the same in hope because the creature or the creation itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. I've never seen such a link in all my time of studying the scriptures. The link between the success of this world and the the liberation of God's people than this passage of scripture sets forth. It simply sets there together. They're, they're connected. This world and us are connected. And you'd expect that. Uh, what was Adam made from? Dust of the earth. The fact of the matter is that there's all kinds of connections made here. Even when uh, the Lord did subject this earth, this creation, to this vanity or futility, He does it in His mind, in the back of God's mind, if we can use that terminology, that in the back of His mind, He knew there'd be a day when He would restore it to its full, its original design. And, and, and so creation, as it is personified here with Paul writing as he did, he personifies it to say, you know, creation hasn't given up on God. Creation hasn't given up its hope. Creation hasn't said, I'm quitting. Creation just keeps going just like it's always gone, knowing that someday, one day, out there, there's going to be a time when God reveals through Christ the sons, the manifestation of the sons of God, that there, in fact, this earth is going to be given back to its original design. And he says, it's interesting, in verse 18, the shall be revealed phrase. You can see in verse 18, where he goes back to that verse, in verse 18, for I reckon that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory. Now watch this, which shall be revealed in us. That's connected, that's us humans connected or linked with verse 21 where it says because the creature itself shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. That's an interesting thing, the connection between the two and seen succinctly all through this. By the way, that word hope in uh, in verse number 20 where he says he closes verse 20 with the words in hope. The word hope in the Christian vocabulary is a certainty, not a prospect. And that's important to keep a hope before you. When you read your Bible, you you can see it because in this context where he uses the phrase, the same in hope because the creature itself also shall be delivered. So the question would say, do you believe that the creature will be delivered? Oh, sure I do. Why do I believe that? Because God said it. Is it a hope then in the sense of the world's hope or is it a Christian hope that's a certainty? It's a certainty. God said it shall be. They shall be delivered from this corruption. It's not a hope it will. I think it might. It's possible. God said, I guarantee it'll happen. And God puts his name on the guarantee. So it will take place someday, somewhere, somehow. Notice something else. It is that that in this context, creation does not deliver itself any more than the Christian delivers himself. You see, in verse 20, he says, For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. And his point made is that in truth, that the creature, creation in this context, 
we'll have to have some help to get this thing pulled off. The same way that the Christian does. Verse 21, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from. The creature shall be delivered from. Not again doing it himself. It's just passive in the Greek. Something outside creation is going to step forth and deliver this thing from this corruption that it's experiencing. And it is in corruption. Don't you dare think otherwise. Everything on it, including you and me, are under the bondage of corruption. We're winding down. Brother Bronner here this morning reminds me that the three trees are four over here, but the last one we dug up later from his place and put, but the three of the red buds that are on this left side. I remember when we put them out, they were no bigger around than that. And now they're that big around, but there's an interesting thing happening to the red bud like it almost always does. They're winding down. Red buds begin to rot, and then the sinners go, and the limbs fall, and the next thing you know, they have to be cut off and replanted. But there's just common to all of life on this earth and all of creation. When it comes to the believers, it's the same exact way. When Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20, he says, For our conversation, our manner of life, is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Get it down in your mind this way. One, there's the original creation And God said it was good. Then there's the creation that was and is, according to Romans chapter 8, the text where we are today, in verse number 22, it is a groaning creation. And then there's a third thing that you can note in verse 21. Because the creature or the creation itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Somehow creation is one day going to be a glorious creation. A good one. A groaning one, but one day a glorious one. And I want to say, I'm excited about seeing that. I'm excited about seeing a creation. You know, if you think flowers are beautiful now and birds sing beautifully now, can you imagine what they will be when the curse is lifted? When they're out from under the bondage of corruption and when they can be what they were originally designed to be? Can you imagine what creation would be? Can you imagine that at the zoos there would not have to be all these fencing you can go in there and roll around with a polar bear and he's not going to bite your head off. I mean, can you imagine what it must be that when, in, in essence, creation was restored like that? I, my mind can't quite fathom that. But I say this to you, it gives hope. And what the Bible is saying and what Paul is writing under the inspiration of God is he's writing it in a personifying way that creation has that kind of anticipation. She's just hanging on because she knows one day, someday... She's going to be restored to what she originally was intended to be. And she keeps looking with earnest expectation. And Paul is encouraging you and me to do the same. By the way, when we come to Christmas time, we sing a song, and I'm confident that we sing a lot of stuff that uh, we don't really think too much about. But we sing about the very truth of Romans chapter 8 and what we just talked about this morning. We sing about it back at Christmas. In Isaac Watts' song, Joy to the World, first verse, you for me, we said, Joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing, and heaven and nature sing. Then in verse number three, he says, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. 
He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. For as the curse is found. For as the curse is found. His point was when Christ Jesus came in the first place, he set in motion a process that would not only give man opportunity to be redeemed from his sinfulness and his corruption, but also would set in motion a process to restore this creation back to what it was originally intended to be. Some points to follow and leave with. First off, don't ever forget this world is God's world. He created it, He is its creator, and He owns it. He owns it. He owns it. A second thing to understand is that sin entered it, not by His will, but sin entered it and forever changed it, and forever changed man, and forever changed all of man's offspring, and also creation. Sin did it. Sin did it. And thirdly, now this world is in a painful, suffering, futile, dying state. And left to itself, it will continue to run down. About that, there is no doubt. There's uh, one of the reasons why stars fall. They're running down. They run out of energy. They just fall out of the sky. That's the way it is with our bodies. They just run out of steam. They run out of energy. They run out of stability to stay healthy and well. That's what this whole thing is doing. All of creation. And don't you forget what verse number 22 or 21 says. That because the creation itself also, in this case, shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption with glorious liberty. Notice in verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain. Paul says that this earth, this creation is travailing and groaning in pain. And so if you think you've had some rough days and you're in pain about this thing all being over and you get into what God planned for you, then you're not alone. Creation feels exactly the same way. And so I say to you, what's important to note here is sometimes God allows those things to come into our lives for a real purpose. The psalmist wrote it this way, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. I'm convinced that God allows things to come into our lives to get us to, as it were, not to trust in ourselves or our abilities, but to rather trust in Him. And I'm convinced that's what He's doing with a lot of the things that come our way now. You might say, Pastor, that's uh, that's well and good, but I just want you to know something. I have a great confidence in our country. I have great confidence in the U.S. of A., and I really think things are getting better around here, and I think everything's just going to work out wonderful. Well... Uh, Kathy shared with me this week a magazine. This is a New American magazine. This is the February edition of it. Over here on uh, page number 12 and 13, it tells about, and maybe years ago, I'm sure many of you heard about them. We had the the North American Free Trade Agreement. It was called NAFTA. You may or may not remember NAFTA. But uh, just in case you've forgotten, let me remind you that NAFTA is North American Free Trade Agreement, but we have also have the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, which is GATT, G-A-T-T, and we also have the World Trade Organizations. So consequently, when, we, when people did that, and a lot of times you and I didn't get a voice in any of that, we thought probably, or we were informed that, everything was going to be better for our country and for our people and for our laborers and so forth. What we never dreamed of is what is happening now with these programs and what is now becoming something of a concern that was raised in question many years ago when this started. 
and that is that the United States of America is losing its sovereignty over these factors. For instance, a case in point, an illustration that this particular magazine gives is one that, that I had heard allusions to, but not the details. And, and I'm not going to give you all the details here, but I'm going to just tell you the sort of the skeleton of the story, and you'll pick it up from there. What it amounted to is that NAFTA has, uh, as it were, a tribunal. It's an international tribunal. And what happens, and this is the article as it reads, this startling fact was brought home last year when the International Tribunal set up a NAFTA over, uh, uh, the tribunal set up by the NAFTA uh, overruled the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts and the U.S. Supreme Court. NAFTA court is a law of three lands, proclaimed the headlines in Sacramento B of Sacramento, California, April the 18th, 2004. The subtlety of the, or excuse me, the subtitle of the article read, quote, obscure tribunals are the last word on trade spats involving U.S., Canada, and Mexico. The story, which was taken from the New York Times, reported on a lawsuit brought by a Canadian real estate company against Massachusetts. Massachusetts High Court had ruled against the Canadian firm, and the U.S. Supreme Court had declined to hear the company's appeal. The case closed, right? Not anymore. The Canadian company, and it gives its name, appealed to the deci appealed their decision to the NAFTA tribunal. The tribunal, the American jurists and political and politicians expressed amazement that this development could take place. Quote, to say, I was surprised to hear that a judgment of the court was being subjected to further review would be an understatement, said Massachusetts Chief Justice Margaret Marshall. This is the biggest threat to United States judicial independence and sovereignty that anyone could ever have heard about. We're no longer a sovereign nation. We now are a people dependent on the rest of the world's decision about what we do. Let me tell you something. If you've had your hopes and pinned them on the United States of America, as much as I love this country and appreciate every ounce of blood that's ever been shed from any soldier on any field or for any soldier who's ever trained to go fight for this country, I'm telling you, your hopes are going to be in vain. America will sink just like all other countries sink in time. And if you hang your hat on that with hope, I'm telling you right now, you're going to be one more disappointed camper. Your hope ought not be in this country. Your hope ought not be in the President of the United States. Your hope ought to be anchored fast in God Almighty Himself through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And your assurances of what's going to happen ought to be drawn from the Holy Scriptures with the clarity of what Romans 8 is saying. This is not the end. This is just one process of the journey. And someday, somehow, God's going to change it all. Liberate the Christians from this bondage of corruption. And He's going to liberate the creation the same exact way. And that's where your hope ought to lie. Not in what this world can come up with that might satisfy you for the moment. Your hope is not in the world. Your hope, if you know Christ, is in God Almighty, who can do no wrong, but can do everything. May God speak. Our Father, I pray you'll drive these truths home to our hearts, and I pray that you would help our hope to be increased and encouraged, and I pray that it might by all means be settled solidly in the truth of your word. I pray this morning, Father, that you might work in every heart here. I pray especially for people, men, women, boys, and girls who may be here in this service who have never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. For them, I pray that you may cause them to understand that they are, even this morning, without hope because they are without Christ. And I pray, Father, that you may deal with them according to your mercy and your grace. 
We know you do all things well, and we know that you've brought them here with purpose and plan. And I pray this morning they'll not leave until they have first believed on Christ and trusted Him and Him alone as their Savior, their Lord. I pray now take the truths that we've heard this morning as believers and dry them deep into our hearts and give us the hope that we need to move on and about in this world that is so hopeless. And Father, help us not to depend all of what we believe and trust in the evening newscast of the nation's news services and media and the magazines and newspapers. Help us, I pray, to rest all of our hope in Thee. And I pray encourage Your people with this truth. And I pray this morning, if there's a man, woman, boy, or girl who ought to come for salvation, please help them come. Draw them by Your Spirit. For believers who ought to come for membership and, and believers' baptism or just to come and pray and to seek your face about matters, whatever the need is, I pray help them to know that you can give hope. You're the hopeful one. Speak to hearts and bring forth fruit you've ordained for the hour. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? If you need a hymn book, turn to 282, just as I am. If God has spoken to your heart this morning about your relationship to Jesus Christ, I hope you'll come and allow us to take a Bible and show you how you can be saved and know it. And if you're here and you know you've been saved but need to follow the Lord in believers' baptism, we invite you. Or church membership, if you've prayed and sought the Lord about it, and this is where God would have you be. Whatever it is that God has spoken about, we invite you to come as we sing the first verse, page 282, just as I am, would you? As we sing, please. Just as I am without one plea. If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? God has spoken to your heart, would you come? Thank you very much for your time, your attention, and your energies. Thank you for coming and making an effort to be with us this morning in Sunday school and worship service. I do hope you'll be back for the evening service, 6 o'clock, here in the auditorium. Patch will make their presentation, and then Brother Brian will open the scriptures to us. I hope you'll come and make it a day with us. Thank you for coming. Let us pray. Our Father, thank you for your word again. Thank you for the privilege we have to handle it, to hold it, to read it, to study it, to meditate on it, to hide it in our hearts. I pray that you may now take that which we've heard today, both in Sunday school and now in the worship service, and uh, drive it deep into our hearts, into our lives, and may it make us to be what we ought to be for your glory. Pray you'll bless Brother Brian tonight as he opens the word to us. Pray you'll lead him, direct him, and use him to communicate that which we need to hear. Bless our patch young people as they share with the church that which they worked on and prepared for. And I pray give them boldness and strength, and may their presentation be encouraging to them. I pray, too, for those of our fellowship who are not well, those both members and visitors of our fellowship. Pray your hand would be upon them, touch them, and heal them, and get them back in the services very, very soon. Thank you again for this good day. We pray your richest blessing on your people as they go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you until we meet again. You are dismissed. Amen.